I thought it was science fiction. This was such a far away pursuit from the traditional ways of drug discovery that, you know, I thought it was, you know, so futuristic that, you know, we, it would be decades, maybe, you know, a century before we could do something like this. And lo and behold, over the course of the past year, um, we've been now able to de novo generate proteins over and over again to different targets where we're computationally generating these complex DNA sequences, building and testing those and finding that uh, we can find therapeutics almost instantaneously. That's Mike Nally, the CEO of Generate Biomedicines. Later, we'll hear more from him about how DNA dictates protein function, and by understanding that, how they can generate novel molecules with desired attributes. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. This episode is brought to you by Zymo Research. Today is Friday, September 30th, and we've got a special episode today. Instead of delivering this week's biopharma and medtech industry news like we usually do, we're going to take some time to discuss the Fierce 15 honorees. And later, we'll take you to the Fierce Biotech Summit. It happened in Boston on September 19th and 20th and covered drug development from the earliest stage of research to FDA approval. We had a great lineup of speakers, So if you're bummed that you missed the summit, then stick with us because later we'll share some panel highlights. Coming up next, the Fierce 15 honorees. But first, a word from our sponsor. Zymo Research is a world leader in sample collection. Safe Collect sample collection kits are designed for at-home sample collection with no cold shipping or expedited shipping required. Samples stay stable at ambient temperature for up to 30 days, and samples are safe to transport with DNA, RNA shield, and activating pathogens, including COVID-19 and monkeypox. I received a series of sample collection kits from Zymo Research, and we tested them out with my family. Both the oral swab and saliva collection methods were very easy to use. I have two young kids, and I can confirm that it is not easy to do proper nasal swabs on children under five. While the saliva collection took a little while to complete, it was very effective with my five-year-old. He even had fun doing it. And my two-year-old did great with the oral swab. It was highly preferred over the traditional nasal swabs. The sample instructions were clear, the collection method was easy, and I was comforted knowing that any pathogens would be deactivated once they enter the test collection kit. If you'd like to learn more about Safe Collect sample collection kits, go to zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O research.com. Every year, our Fierce Biotech team evaluates hundreds of early-stage companies from around the world, and only the most promising make it on our annual Fierce 15 list. Making it on the list is a huge honor. That list is based on a variety of factors, like the strength of the company's technology, partnerships, venture backers, and a competitive market position. This year's 15 honorees were recognized at the Fierce Biotech Summit earlier this month, but I got to talk to most of them over the past two weeks and hear directly from them about their company's work, what makes it unique, and what drives them. I spoke with Mike Nally, the CEO of Generate Biomedicines, first. Generate Biomedicines is focused on creating de novo proteins basically designing proteins from scratch rather than from an already known protein structure. Imagine being able to engineer a protein based on the target you want to hit 
I mean, it would completely change the current technique from a trial and error process to one that is deliberate, predictable, or engineered. I asked Naley to explain how the engineering process works. Here's what he said. Proteins have been discovered based on the use of the human immune system, a mouse's immune system, a llama's immune system, and then finding uh, proteins that stick to the desired target of interest. Um, We've taken a fundamentally different approach that relies on our ability to computationally generate protein sequences and then build and test those sequences um, straight out of the computer. And so for us, um, our approach is not uh, limited by those that are found in the immune systems of um, those different species, but rather um, can be programmed um, to the desired specificity as well as the therapeutic qualities that we're, we're looking to drive. Synthokine is re-engineering cells in the immune system to fight cancer and autoimmune diseases, and at the same time, reducing troubling side effects. Cytokines are small proteins that influence the immune system by essentially talking to cells. So synthokine is trying to influence those cytokines, ultimately to fight cancer and inflammatory diseases. Here's what Debanjan Ray, the CEO of Synthokine, told me. There's many cytokines that are encoded in the human genome, about 40, and we're working on a large number of them. We're working on targets both for cancer and for autoimmune disease, mainly targets where the underlying biology is well understood, uh, which allows us to really develop the right biasing strategy to expand therapeutic index for these important cytokines. Everybody is in biotech because um, (laughs) they want to make a difference for patients. And that's absolutely what drives me the most is is really making a difference for for cancer patients. Verge Genomics is tapping into the full potential of artificial intelligence and using AI to track down therapies for the really tough diseases. And among the most stubborn are neurological conditions like ALS. When it comes to clinical studies, the success rate is abysmal. So what makes Verge different? Well, instead of mouse or small animal studies, Verge is using real human tissue samples taken directly from affected patients. They are then applying AI and genetic analysis to help develop new medicines. Already, the company has an ALS candidate that should enter the clinic at the end of the year. So that's what's happening now in 2022. But when I spoke with Alex Zhang, the CEO of Verge Genomics, I asked her what we can expect from Verge a decade from now. You see, in addition to choosing the Fierce 15 honorees each year, we also do a story called Fierce 15, Where Are They Now? It looks back on the honorees from 10 years ago. So I asked Alice, what will we be writing about Verge in that Look Back article in 2032? My hope is that we will have gotten um, at least one drug over the finish line, if not multiple diseases, where we've really been able to show meaningful efficacy for new drugs. And I think, you know, in the long term, our vision has always been to build the next version of Genentech. But for the digital age, we think there's a massive opportunity that's really similar to how in the 60s and 70s, um, where new developments in molecular technologies and DNA sequencing enabled companies like Genentech to form. We think we're in a similar era right now where massive advances in genomics, machine learning, um, biological engineering are creating the right foundation to start building kind of the next generation or the next version of um, enduring biotechnology companies. And that's 
that's what uh, my vision is for the next uh, kind of 10 plus years. I put the same question to Nolan Townsend, the CEO of Lexio Therapeutics. Lexio has an ambitious goal. Alzheimer's is a notoriously tricky disease, and Lexio wants to develop a single administration treatment for Alzheimer's. Here's what Townsend said when I asked him what we'll be saying about Lexio 10 years from now. I think you will see that Lexio has transformed some very challenging diseases that you know society is, is struggling with. I think we will apply gene therapy beyond the potential of where society believes it can be applied today. I think the approach that we're taking, for example, in pursuing treatments for Alzheimer's disease can have a very significant societal benefit. And I think by demonstrating positive clinical data associated with that program, uh, we can potentially have a, a single administration treatment for Alzheimer's disease that can really transform how society thinks about aging and Alzheimer's disease. Lexia would be a company that has a, a significant impact on society. Well, Nolan Townsend, we're counting on it and we'll be in touch. <laughs> That's what I love about the Fierce 15. Every year, the Fierce team is betting on what companies will continue to make waves for years to come. The ideas may be different. The approach or goal may be unique. But one thing that was evident when I spoke to the CEOs was a common thread of passion. For some, it was a passion to solve difficult biological mysteries. For others, they simply want to help people who are suffering. And some of them wanted to be a part of building something big. For Greg Verdeen, the CEO of LifeMind Therapeutics, it was more of a calling. Some time ago, I discovered this problem of uh, that the majority of human therapeutic targets were undruggable, were called undruggable. And around that time, around 2000, I coined a term that has come to be ubiquitous. That term is drugging the undruggable. And that is really, uh, you know, the reason why I'm on this earth uh, is to drug the undruggable. And when I, when I coined this term, you know, more than 20 years ago now, I set out on a course to found uh, companies, one after the other after the other, serially, that would all take on the problem of drugging the undruggable. LifeMind Therapeutics is using a drug discovery platform powered by AI. It sifts through the sequenced genomes of fungi to find the next small molecule drug. And let's talk about Amphista Therapeutics. Nikki Thompson is the CEO for Amphista Therapeutics. She told me that when she looked at the technology for the first time, it had all of the things she wanted. Everything she thinks would make for a successful technology and also a successful biotech company. She told me that Amphista really had the legs to develop candidate molecules and fundamental medicines. And we thought so too. That's why we chose Amphista Therapeutics for Fierce 15. So Amphista was founded at the end of 2017. Um, and it was founded actually on a hypothesis that you can do things differently in the field of targeted protein degradation. We have a fantastic drug-like novel technology that we believe addresses some of the limitations of the first approaches in this space. Now, those approaches have been very successful, but we think we address some of the limitations that inhibit the ability of this field to embrace 
quickly all of the therapy areas that are open to this amazing new modality. So novel technology that can open up the space. Ten years ago, when CRISPR-Cas9 was discovered, it was revolutionary. CRISPR became a household word synonymous with gene editing, a way of finding a specific bit of DNA inside a cell and then changing it. Can you imagine? Well, thanks to that discovery, now we can. So when Devin Smith, the CEO of Arbor Biotechnologies, told me that Cas9 wasn't the best nucleus, at first I was kind of surprised. Then he explained, it was simply the first one. It set a new course for what is possible in genetics. So where do we go from here? Well, Smith says that Arbor Biotechnologies is on the right track. The company is developing gene therapies with an extensive gene editing toolbox. I fundamentally believe that if we are to change the overall healthcare system in the U.S., and that's the way we treat disease, the way we pay for it and reimburse it and all those pieces, we've got to shift away from uh, hacking at the leaves of diseases, but really get to the root cause of the disease. And that's why I think editing is fantastic from that perspective. And speaking of gene editing, another Fierce 15 honoree on that path is Shape Therapeutics. Instead of using CRISPR to directly edit DNA, Shape is focused on RNA. These are the molecules that carry instructions from the DNA to produce proteins. So because of this, Shape could develop treatments that can fix these problematic proteins without actually changing the DNA. Francois Vigneault, Shape's CEO, explained to me what makes his company successful. Some tips I'm sure we can all use. So they take a strain of spaghetti and then they tell you this is the one that will stick to the wall. And I did best in me, this is the one. And then you throw it at the wall. And because science is hard, 90% of these strain of spaghetti won't stick and then the company's dead. And then once the bloom on, one works and it just takes off. And we're talking the vertex of the world, the region around. But as they take off, they usually don't end up innovating beyond the one asset they have. So what we decided to do at SHIP is, again, a bit more like a tech machine learning approach to things. I take the old batch of spaghetti and I have no preconceived notion of what's going to work. And I throw it at the wall. And then we look at all the one that's stuck and then we double down on them. So it's all about creating massive optionality to account for the high failure rate of life science. Well, Vigneault, we had to sift through a huge pile of spaghetti and pick out the 15 noodles we thought would stick. It wasn't easy. Now I'm hungry for lunch. So, hey, I didn't have a chance to speak with someone from each company honored in the Fierce 15, but you can read all about them and their work in our Fierce 15 report, a collaborative article by Ben Adams, Max Bayer, Angus Liu, Zoe Becker, Nick Paul Taylor, James Waldron, Andrea Park, Gabrielle Mason, Kevin Dunlevy, Fraser Kansteiner, Eric Saganowski, and Connor Hale. You can find the report in our show notes. Just go to fiercepharma.com and look for podcasts. But before we move on, I just want to give a shout out to the rest of the honorees and the work they are doing. Agomab Therapeutics is using the power of ALK inhibitors, but without the toxicity, to treat a major unmet need in Crohn's disease. Aviato Bio is treating neurodegenerative diseases with innovative gene therapies. Recode Therapeutics is expanding delivery beyond the liver to realize the full potential of genetic medicines. Scorpion Therapeutics is using its 2.0 precision oncology platform to reinvent small molecule drugs and tackle undruggable targets. Storm Therapeutics is pioneering the field of RNA epigenetics. Strand Therapeutics is a pre-pandemic player using synthetic biology to push mRNA-based medicines beyond vaccines. 
Blastotherapeutics is harnessing the predictive power of chromosomal instability to treat cancer. So next, I'm going to take you to the Fierce Biotech Summit, but first, a word from our sponsor. Zymo Research is a world leader in sample collection. SafeCollect sample collection kits are designed for at-home sample collection with no cold shipping or expedited shipping required. Samples stay stable at ambient temperature for up to 30 days, and samples are safe to transport with DNA, RNA shield, and activating pathogens, including COVID-19 and monkeypox. SafeCollect sample kits can be used to detect a number of pathogens, including but not limited to SARS-CoV-2, dengue virus, Ebola virus, influenza A, rhinovirus, MERS coronavirus, West Nile virus, as well as a number of bacteria and yeast and eukaryotes. From NASA to Nobel Prize winners, those who rely on safe, simple, reliable sample collection use Zymo Research products. To learn more about safe collect sample collection kits, go to zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O research.com. It has been a decade of progress since the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Biopharmas are facing new challenges in an increasingly competitive field. Angus Liu, a senior staff writer at Fierce Pharma, led a panel discussion at the Fierce Biotech Summit on the future of gene editing techniques and what's next for advanced therapies. The panelists included Jason Gerke, the head of immunology at Beam Therapeutics, David LeBol, the executive vice president and chief medical officer at Intelia Therapeutics, Michael Holmes, the chief scientific officer at Tessera, Craig McCannon, the executive director in chemical biology and therapeutics, and global head of the Genomic Sciences Group, Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research. Here's a small part of that discussion. It's been 10 years uh, since Jennifer Doudna and uh, Dr. Emmanuel Charpentier published that. At that time, it was very little known, very little noticed uh, science paper that opened the door to using CRISPR-Cas9 for gene editing. So uh, this question is for all our panelists to just look back at the past 10 years and pinpoint one, pick one, the most important breakthrough that you think that had happened uh, in the last decade after that CRISPR study. Michael, I'm going to start with you. I'm actually going to maybe pick something that's a little bit different from um, my other panelists um, in that, you know, I think there are many advances in genome editing that that I could I could point to, and and I think well justified in terms of just how it's advanced our capability is transforming or turning these editing technologies in, into actual drugs. But you know I think you know I, I sort of go back about twenty years, starting in the field of genome editing before it was actually called genome editing, and I think one of the things that's really enabled uh, I think turning sort of genome editing tools into actual drugs is really a lot of the advances that we've made in delivery, and specifically mRNA delivery. Uh, and that when I first started, we, were, we had very limited options. You know, we could make great sort of genome editing technologies, but we couldn't get them to the cells that we wanted to uh, in order sort of to really efficiently translate these uh, technologies into the clinic. And so I think what you've seen over the last 10 years is really just sort of an explosion um, in both the sort of, I think, development of RNA therapeutics, non-viral delivery, that is certainly superior to the viral vectors that we first used when I first 
got into the field that were off, uh, you know, very limited in terms of uh, just how efficient they could be. Uh, they had big issues with uh, sort of immunogenicity, and you know they were very costly. Whereas I think mRNA delivery and the in the use of messenger RNA has really enabled us to sort of move forward not only in cell-based therapies, but really thinking about how do you translate this technology in vivo to most efficiently sort of drive these types of therapeutic effects. And, and I think it is really a key for us to think about how do you sort of make these technologies more sort of cost-efficient, um, as well as being able to broaden the access uh, of these transformative therapies to patients worldwide, is, is to be able to really leverage, I think, both the know-how um, as well as the infrastructure that's been generated by sort of, uh, I think, the explosion of, of RNA therapeutics on, onto the scene. Okay. Uh, gene delivery, novel gene delivery method. Mm -hmm. uh, so, David, what do you think? Yeah, to say, Mike, the delivery is key to, to what we're doing um, and, and certainly very important for all of our vaccines. So that's, that's a big moment. But I see the most important thing since uh, the discovery of CRISPR uh, in people, at least, is the ability that we've shown that you can treat people um, in vivo to edit their, their cells. So what um, Intellia has done is using a lipid nanoparticle, we've enclosed a messenger RNA and a guide RNA. And with that, um, give that intravenously, and that, that goes to the liver and edits different genes. What we showed last, G, uh, last June is that we're able to um, knock out the uh, TTR gene, and this is for a disease many of you probably have never heard of, called amyloidosis. It's actually, there's more and more patients being discovered to have this because it's involved in about 10% of the cases of heart failure that people have. So you probably do know people who have heart failure. Um, last June, we showed that we could knock down at the second dose level, we got down to 87%. And just this last Friday, so you get the hot news, um, we we're able to get to 90, 93% reduction in the protein. And uh, compared to existing drugs, get about 80%. We're, we're very excited about going forward with this in gene editing. Friday, we also reported the second, the second example of in vivo gene editing, which was for hereditary angioedema. And in this case, these are patients who sometimes begin in their adolescence, getting swelling in various parts of their body. Uh, it goes through the calocrine, bradykinin pathway. And what we showed is by knocking down precalocrine, in this case, very similar to the last, about 92% at the second dose level, um, that these patients went to have, from one patient having 15 of these attacks a month, really overtaking his life in a lot of ways, went to zero attacks uh, eventually in that trial after about seven, uh, 10 weeks. Right. In vivo. So excited. In vivo We're editing. excited about in vivo editing as well as, and, and the different ways of delivering it is certainly right. key. Yeah. Uh, so, Crack, what about you? Yeah, I'll take a little bit of a different angle on this. So, you know, we've been interested in definitive loss of function technologies as a tool in basic research to validate targets long before we were thinking about these as, as therapeutic modalities. 
And we were really excited to see some of the advances that were made in the early generations of gene editing technologies, things like zinc finger nucleases and talons, which were based on engineered nucleases, which, which worked very well, but were actually held in the hands of a few key experts, Sangamo Biosciences being one around zinc finger nucleases, et cetera. And it was really the identification of the CRISPR system by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel and uh, the Feng Zhang lab which really democratized this. So you no longer needed to develop a custom-made engineered nuclease for a particular site in the genome. You could just use Watson-Crick base pairing to move down to a different site and then direct discrete enzymatic activities, enzymatic activities to various locations in the genome. And this was put into the hands of the masses. So if you then look at the advances that have been made, things like base editing, things like prime editing. These are really based on putting these discoveries and the tools into the hands of others to innovate in this space. And I don't think that this would have seen this acceleration of innovation in genome editing space without the ability to have these tools more broadly available. So I really look at that as being one of the key advances that was made that's really moved this field over the course of the last 10 years. Nice. Uh, Mass adoption. So Jason, what do you think? For me, I think it's about how the programmability of the system has begun to play out in in the clinic. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we can take a Cas enzyme and a guide RNA and turn it into a drug and then turn around and use those exact same components Mm -hmm. and switch out just 20 or so nucleotides of the guide RNA and create an entirely new drug, I think is incredibly exciting for the field in terms of drug development. Thank you, our wonderful panelists for participating. There's no doubt that biotech is facing tough times. Shares are in free fall. Investors have shut off the tap that flowed in the wake of the COVID crisis. And small companies are being forced to lay off staff. Pierce's managing editor, Karita Anderson, led a panel to discuss how companies can stay afloat, raise money, and keep alive in this bear market. The panelists include Stefan Viktorovic, co-founder and managing director at Vita Ventures, Adam Friedman, President of Corporate Strategy and Business Development at Scorpion Therapeutics. Marion Nakata, Vice President at Venture Investments and Johnson & Johnson Innovation. And Maha Katabi, the General Partner at Sofanova Investments. One thing I want to talk about first is really how this bear market is different from prior downturns that the sector has faced because we have been here before. Um, There are obviously global factors at play, and biotech isn't the only one facing this downturn. But Maha, could you uh, start us off with that and tell us what you think about what makes this one different? It does feel very different. Well, for for once, for starters, I think it's been a much longer downturn that we have seen previously in biotech. Um, And we, in particular, biotech investors, have felt it because actually biotech markets have been correcting uh, since the middle of 2021. But what has happened over the last six months that is different is that the broader equity markets have corrected. Um, so there's a whole series of geopolitical risks, um, of uh, monetary policy risk, uh, increasing interest rates. That's now a reality. A lot of speculation about how that may play out in the next six to nine months. And we'll actually find out Um, what the Fed would do over the next couple of days in terms of the next uh, rate increase. So that part feels different. Downturns specifically in biotech 
have happened in the context of broader macro turmoil that has spilled over into biotech. And right now, it feels like it's the other way around. What started in biotech, it spilled over the entire market. And now, you know, here we are uh, trying to anticipate what the next six to nine months hold. Um, I think there are a few elements to, to keep in mind that are specific to biotech. This is you know, why we're here. This is what we all know um, how to do and what keeps the industry ticking. Um, and we can come back to that, I guess, as we explore what will get us out of this downturn. But one of the key things is clinical data and clinical success. Um, and so part of the um, parallels between this downturn and the prior downturns is that the first stocks to recover and the first biotech companies to get rewarded for what they have done, and we heard from Anna this morning at Mersana, uh, they have continued to soldier along and move programs into the clinic, and they were rewarded with uh, influx of capital from partnerships. Uh, and what we are seeing more broadly in the market is that companies that are reporting positive clinical data are now getting recognized. So there is definitely a trend that has been true in prior downturns that is true now. And when this historical clinical success rate that's hovered over 50%, 50, 51% for mid to late stage clinical companies, when it's dipped below that average, which was true in Q4 21, as well as Q1 this year, it was right around 41. It even dipped to 36% earlier this year. And now we're back above 50%. So in Q3, it's been at 61%. Um, and so that definitely is what keeps me optimistic about the fact that once you are above that historical success rate, uh, capital does flow into biotech, and we've seen it with a number of events. Um, so that remains true compared to previous downturns. Maha, that's such an interesting point. I think, you know, especially as a journalist, we're in the news every single day and in the weeds, and we don't necessarily think about the forest as, as often as we would also like to. So hearing um, that the clinical success rate has ticked up above the average is, you know, definitely a good sign. So Stefan, the first question I, um, like you probably guessed, is, just to talk a little bit about what makes this bear market different for biotech. And Maha laid out a few things, and I'd love to get your perspective as well about what's different this time around, if anything, or maybe you think it is very similar to past uh, downturns that the sector has faced. Yeah, I think it's interesting because every time people ask uh, what's different, and I think the answer is always everything's different and nothing is different, which is uh, <laughs> something that uh, a common axiom that, that keeps me uh, at least at night mm -hmm. sleeping. Um, so I was an investment banker in 2006 and 2007, right before uh, the uh, major Great Recession. Um, and during that time, I think there was a period of almost two years when not a single um, pre-proof of concept company went public. And I think what we're seeing is uh, a market that uh, is more selective. I think uh, it, people talk about an IPO window. I think it's more of a filter, uh, and the filter is quite tight right now. So you're seeing more selectivity. I think this time, but you are seeing a lot of capital. I think uh, some folks have quoted at something around $50 billion of uh, private venture capital was raised over the last couple of years. Um, most of that uh, capital is in the form of dry powder, um, looking to get deployed on the, on the public's private side. And on the public side, there's a lot of investors still looking for opportunity, um, but they have to weigh any sort of uh, investment uh, against the backdrop of companies that have been dislocated 50 to 75%, and also protecting their own books. So I think there's a lot of defensive nature. But I think what's different this time is 
There's a lot more investors with eyeballs in biotech. There's more recognition of the value biotech can deliver, both in terms of alpha and patient um, unmet need. And I think uh, there is capital for, for, for great companies. Adam, from your perspective, as somebody working at Scorpion, what changes are you seeing when you're out there talking to investors? Uh, and not just the driving forces behind this, uh, this recession, but also how biotechs have to handle it differently compared to perhaps other sectors? Sure. I think it's a, a, a great question. I think I'll try to provide the perspective of an operating company um, with um, several investors on either side of me here. I think the most, one of the important features is the timing. So I think if you're, as an operating company, in a bear market, and then you think about how we're going to react to this bear market, I think that's probably too late. I think when you found the company during the bull market as things are going well, you always have to know that the music will stop eventually, so you know which chair you're going to be in. So create that optionality during the, uh, the bull market so that you're not caught then trying to react in the middle of what everyone knows is going to come in cycles as a bear market. And so I think that means building a sustainable company for the long term. And there are three key areas, at least um, at Scorpion, how we think about this, of creating a resilient company uh, to bear markets. One, which is probably the most important, and Stefan, you mentioned this on an earlier call, which is about culture. Um, That is, do you have a culture of trust and transparency and truth with your employees. We're talking about uh, basis points, we're talking about balance sheet and runway, these clinical terms, but at the end of the day, we're talking about employees and their livelihoods. And everyone is reading the same fierce articles, everyone knows what's happening in the market. And so there is some fear out there. And so if you have established this culture from the beginning of this trust, transparency, you directly level with employees, this is what's happening, and this is how, why are we going to um, sail through these stormy seas together? I think you have uh, what is really the catalyst for building value and traversing this kind of bear market, which is your employees continuing to work in your programs towards the, the ultimate clinical data that you need. I think beyond the culture, the other two areas, which I think everyone has probably heard before, the, the uh, uh, business fundamentals, so certainly internally, have you built a a platform that's sustainable, that can repeatedly deliver assets that provide optionality for you as a company? Have you thought about capital efficiency uh, so that you can make that prioritization when you need to in the bear market if you have to do that? And finally, of course, is business development of finding partners uh, who can help you traverse this risk of time to get to clinical data. But I think also the, the flip side, which is in a, uh, a, a bull market, you have to be thinking about a bear market. Similarly, in a bear market, thinking about you're going to come out of a bear market eventually is, as you heard earlier today from the uh, Mersana story, is thinking carefully about what you're giving away for when times are better and the cost of capital goes down. How are you going to be able to, to create value and uh, reach inflection points uh, that you retain that kind of value? So I think that's what uh, those are the three key areas you think about Uh, traversing a kind of bear market. And I think this is what investors are looking for. Have you created that optionality as a company, created that sustainability? And um, there certainly is a flight to quality. And so if investors see that, the capital is out there for sure. And if they see near-term catalysts, they see that you have a path towards this kind of value inflection that um, the money is still there if you need it. So, you know, Adam, you make that point about being prepared, right? And that's obviously the best strategy. But Mary, maybe I might put this to you. For a 
company that is just now starting out or starting out in the past year or last couple of years, they haven't had that much time to prepare for this. Maybe they didn't read the tea leaves, right, and expect this. Um, from your perspective at JJDC, how do you sort of advise companies of that nature that are coming to you for your deep pockets and, you know, trying to get investment? What are you, and then what are you evaluating when you're looking at these smaller, younger biotechs in particular? So we are very strategic. Not all strategic investors uh, have that same lens. They're much more financial. So for us, we're very, uh, we need to align what we invest in with what the folks within the sectors, you know, consumer device and pharma are looking for. Uh, So that's number one. We're finding, in terms of newer companies, a lot more coming to us to look to lead their next financings as corporates because I think one of the observations is Mm -hmm. the crossovers who have become really a regular part of the ecosystem, whereas, you know, many, many years ago, it was really only like, crossover to IPO for clinical stage companies, which was oftentimes like post the sea or something, you know, much later. And they eked earlier and earlier and just became part of the fabric. And when they, they are the majority um, of the past few years of the folks that actually lead, you know, B rounds, let's say, which are crossovers, or even coming in earlier at the A and even forming companies. So their absence has uh, has led uh, corporates like us to be sort of one of the options for fill-in because we do lead investments. Not all firms do, you know, do lead. And so, um, so in terms of advice, one of the things that for us is if you're going to come look to us, let's say to lead around, uh, it, number one has to be on strategy. Number two, it has to be something that we have a lot of scientific conviction about because it's an opportunity cost. We're not going to lead every investment. And then by definition, we're putting in what the one of the largest checks in that round. So we're also risking a lot of financial capital, um, you know, f- for that company. So, uh, so you know, so I guess, you know, the advice I give is, yeah, corporates are one means actually to either leading or filling out your syndicate. And you're seeing a lot of that. I think there was the press release most recently, I guess, with Capstan uh, in Philly, where there was multiple strategics in, in that investment. So it's, um, so, uh, so anyway, so corporates are, are, are good, I think. I, I don't mean to say that, <laughs> to be self-promoting, but in the sense that we uh, historically have um, continued to be strong investors during these downturns. So we invest off, off the balance sheet, and we obviously um, don't, I mean, have the same sort of um, uh, uh, constraints, I'd say, or, or, or drivers as, as some of the financial investors. Um, in addition, um, some investors like the Pfizer folks, you can see, have a lot of capital to invest probably because of the success of their vaccine. So some of them are becoming much more uh, active even now. So, uh, so I'd say, you know, you know, some of the advice is, is you know, be open to, to corporates as, uh, as, you know, looking to them the way you would as, let's say, a crossover or a financial VC. And if you liked that, you can watch more of the panel discussions at FierceBiotechSummit.com. It's free to register and the panels will be available for six months. That's it for the top line. I'm senior producer, Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to follow the top line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's the bottom line from the top line.